Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So if you'd like to open up and follow along. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he had said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in this day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be more like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of the fruits and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Did God really say? It's the title of next series of messages as we begin today, as we finished up the amazing Gospel of Matthew. Did God really say doubt? Probably the most insidious, the most treacherous, crafty, sneaky, deceptive, devious, and underhanded temptation of all time. Certainly the oldest and the longest lasting. Why? Because doubt, if not treated correctly, leads to unbelief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Verse, uh, verse 3, God has a strong warning for us as the Holy Spirit inspires Paul. And he writes this, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and, uh, and pure devotion to Christ. What that's saying is that the devil is going to use the same method on us as he did on Eve to try to get us to a position of unbelief. So what was a tactic the devil used on Eve? We find that there in the first verse of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say the first attack in history as recorded in the Bible was on the Word of God? Satan used the tactic to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's Word in an attempt to get them going on that slippery slope of doubt to unbelief. And it worked, as we would see in the rest of that chapter. And God warns us there in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan is going to use the same method on us today as he used that tactic ever since the temptation in Genesis 3, which has now become known in some circles as the Genesis 3 attack. Now, we're going to be hanging out here in Genesis 3 for a number of weeks. Shouldn't surprise you. Because there's so much to unpack here. And Satan's tactic of doubt has permeated the world and the church. Now, we're going to be uh, looking at 
or I want to unravel, excuse me, um, the concept of doubt this morning and why it can be so evil. So I'm going to kind of set up this series of messages. But then we're going to be looking at the doubting of God's Word and whether or not we can really trust God's Word from the beginning to the end. We're going to look at the instigator of evil. Where did evil come from and why? I mean, you know, if God is so good, then why did He create evil? and Why is there all this suffering in the world? We're going to look at that first temptation and see how Eve and subsequently Adam handled it. In the process, we're going to be looking at creation and the reliability of God's Word all the way back in Genesis 1, and we'll be touching on a lot of other questions that are going to be raised with this doubt. So the serpent's question, did God really say, opens up a huge can of worms? And as Solomon said, there really is nothing new under the sun. Since the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden, nothing really has changed. In fact, the only time this world was really very different was during that short period of time before the fall. Now, we've had a lot of advances in technology, to be sure, but we continue to be under the effects of the fall. We still constantly struggle in our relationship with God, and we are all born with a self-seeking desire to be our own king. It was in Genesis that this desire started when we fell victim to that Genesis 3 attack. The question, did God really say, appeals to the pride of mankind. You see, by questioning God in this way, we are enticing our self-seeking nature to suggest that we can wear our own crown. We can be on the throne. We can make our own decisions and think the way we want The fruit on the sin tree always looks pleasing to the eye, does it not? It's tasty. And it puts us in a position of being our own God. You see, if we can wear our own crown, I can do whatever I want. The desire for my own pleasure becomes supreme. I, I want my own thinking to be preeminent. And that attack says that our word is supreme over the Word of God. Did God really say? And this attack has never changed from the time of Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, all the way to this present day. We see a history of God dealing with a rebellious humanity, consistently questioning His Word, resulting in a lot of examples of explicit idolatry. Idolatry. Here's a good description of idolatry written by John Piper. Paul says covetousness, which is idolatry. He starts there. Then he says, so what idolatry looks like today is the activity of the human heart. This is not a deed of the body. It starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. And he goes on to say, that is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness, a disordered love or desire, loving something more than God, what ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. 
But covetousness is a condition that this disordered heart is in, an act of loving too much what ought to be loved less. And that is why the wrath of God is coming. That is what idolatry looks like today, and it is everywhere in our culture. End quote. Why is it everywhere? Because our world has succumbed to the age-old attack on God. And they have sought, or they have bought into, doubting God, doubting His Word, and ultimately doubting His very existence. Doubting God, doubting His Word, and doubting His existence. Who does that benefit? Satan. The author of that temptation. And as a result of that, the world has used that attack to, re, to reject God's moral code for our own self-seeking pleasure and kingship. However, what's even more damaging is when the church attempts to appease the world by compromising its stance on God's truth, by partnering with the Genesis 3 attack. And the adoption of the philosophy of millions of years and evolutionary thinking has resulted in even believers questioning the historical foundation of biblical Christian doctrine. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been created or what has been made so that people are without excuse. But Satan and the world are saying, ah, did God really say that? Nah, don't, don't look at that creation. Nothing to see here. Doubt. And the fact that theory was put forth by an atheist should speak volumes. We'll be looking at that in the, weeks, in the weeks to come. But as we look at the state of our nation today, we see godlessness and unbelief sweeping across the culture. The morality of our culture is in steep decline. Atheists are growing in both number and aggressiveness in this once very Christianized culture. Statistics tell us that at least two-thirds of our young people are leaving the church by college age. We've been talking about that a little bit in our spiritual growth class and very few return. So what's happening? What's caused this? Again, God, God's warning to us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, our minds may somehow be led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Led astray, led away from the Lord, led away from the truth. That's the result that Satan wants in the world. And that's the result that Satan has achieved. And unfortunately, he's achieved it within the church as well. And the church in many ways has been complicit in this. I'm talking about church in general, the larger term of church. And they've been complicit in adopting many of the world's philosophies and trying to conform the world's philosophies to, uh, or to excuse me, trying to conform the Bible to the world's philosophies. Or just by being silent, not standing up and saying, no, that's false. And the church in many ways has been silenced in our culture and we've allowed it. The insidiousness of doubt. What does the word insidious mean? I looked it up. Merriam-Webster Dictionary. 
says this, insidious, having a gradual and cumulative effect, developing so gradually as to be well-established before becoming apparent, awaiting a chance to entrap, harmful but enticing. And Satan has been working on this for the past 6,000 years. Years developing it so gradually that it became well established before it became apparent. I was reading a blog the other day about postmodernism. I'm going to ask Luke to come up here. Eric, we talked about that earlier. This blog um, it included a YouTube video and uh, it interview with a college student by the name of Dan. This, this is a real interview. We can't play it on, on Facebook and stuff, so I transcribed it. And I'm going to have... Eric. I know. I know. I'm going to have Eric help me out with this, okay? His name is Dan, all right? <laughs> That's much easier. Hey, Dan. We'll have to call him from Dan from now on. So, Dan, what's two plus two? Uh, four. I think it's seven. Am I wrong? Uh, maybe. What do you mean maybe? What are you studying? Industrial engineering. <laughs> what kind of industrial engineer thinks two plus two equals seven? I mean, it could be abstract, and you know, maybe in a different dimension it could be seven. I'm talking about this dimension. Then four. So I'd be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> okay, something else. I think Oprah Winfrey is the great goddess of the universe. And if I say her name seven times before I die, I'm going to live for eternity in her high-rise penthouse in Chicago, enjoying a healthy diet and her personal trainer for all of eternity. That's what I believe. Am I wrong? Uh, no. <laughs> How do you know? Uh, I mean, in your perception of reality, so... So you think I'm right? No. So you think I'm wrong? Also no. So, you think I'm right? No. Then I must be wrong. Uh, no. <laughs> Why not? It's dopey. Uh, you know, I'm just saying your perception of reality is different from my perception of reality. So, you can believe whatever you want about this universe, but I can believe whatever I want. They don't have to be the same. Okay. But when it comes to truth, when, when it comes to personal preference, it's either true or not true. Correct? Well, in your perception of reality, sure. Are you even... Are we even here, for sure? Uh, sure, our perception of it, yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, maybe some people <laughs> think we're just blobs of energy flowing out in space, so... So, I might not even be here. I might just be somebody's imagination. Sure, yeah. You too? Yep. We just happen to be floating in somebody's imagination, potentially? Yeah, potentially. Potentially. <laughs> and you're sure about that? In one sense, in reality, sure. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Dan. Oh, yeah, no the blog went on to say, Dan isn't an isolated case. There are millions more like him. His, his postmodern beliefs encapsulate the dominant mindset of the 21st century. 
And I continue to quote the blog where it says, Postmodernism in general is marked by a tendency to dismiss the possibility of any sure and settled knowledge of the truth. Postmodernism suggests that if objective truth exists, listen, if objective truth exists, it cannot be known objectively or with any degree of certainty. That's because, according to postmodernists, the subjectivity of the human mind makes knowledge of objective truth impossible. So it is useless to think of truth in objective terms. Objectivity is an illusion. Nothing is certain, and the thoughtful person will never speak with too much conviction about anything. Strong convictions about any point of truth are judged supremely arrogant and hopelessly naive. Everyone is entitled to his own truth. Postmodernism, it goes on to say, therefore has no positive agenda to assert anything as true or good. Perhaps you've noticed that only the most, that only the most heinous crimes are still seen as evil. And then parentheses it says, actually, there are many today who are prepared to dispute whether anything is evil, so such language is fast disappearing from public discourse. That is because the notion of evil itself does not fit in the postmodern scheme of things. If we can't really know anything for certain, how can we judge anything evil? Folks, if there is no truth, no wonder people are having a hard time wrapping their minds around the reality of Jesus Christ and the reality of God's Word. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But in the postmodern world in which we live, there is no absolute truth, and therefore, Jesus himself becomes irrelevant. Jesus in John 17, praying to his Father, says, Your word is truth. Was he lying? That's where Satan's insidious temptation of doubt in Genesis 3 takes us. If we doubt God's word and therefore rebel against it, the truth of Jesus Christ goes away, the truth of the cross goes away, the truth of forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal life all go away. That's where Satan started, and that's where we are today. Now, to be fair and to be clear, doubt itself is not necessarily sin. Let me put that out there. It's what we do with that doubt. Like any temptation that comes to our mind in the form of a thought, it's what we do with that thought that determines whether we sin or not. And that's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, take every thought captive to do what with it? To make it obedient to Christ. Conform that thought to the truth of Scripture or get rid of it. Now, to make every thought obedient to Christ, we must know and trust Scripture. And that's exactly what Satan was trying to get Eve, and by extension Adam, and by further extension all of mankind not to do, but rather to doubt God's Word and to disobey it. And that's when sin took place, and we'll be looking a little bit more at that in, the, in a few weeks. See, Satan didn't create doubt but he did use it, and he used it well, and he's using it effectively today. 
But doubt itself is not sin, and it can actually lead us to a stronger faith if we allow it to, or if we use it effectively and properly. Doubt is one of those things that Christians either don't like to talk about because, oh, I must not be a good, strong Christian, or if it's brought up, you know, short, quick, sometimes glib answers are thrown out as a solution. Ah, you shouldn't doubt. You can't question that. You know what the Bible says is true. Just believe. It's easy for people to shut down and walk away unsatisfied, not having an answer for their questions. And so they look elsewhere for their answer, somewhere other than the church. And they become disenchanted, disillusioned, and dissatisfied with the church. I would say, if you're really honest with yourselves, you can probably point to a time, perhaps many times, where you've doubted something about your faith, or about God, or His love, or His power, or even His availability. But what do we do with that doubt in our faith? You know, those cheap answers of just have more faith just doesn't cut it. Faith is often seen as the opposite of doubt. But is it really? In reality, the opposite of faith is certainty. Because where there is certainty, there's no room for faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. Now faith is confident, confidence in what we hope for and assurance. There is an aspect of certainty there for sure. But it's an assurance about what we do not see. That's faith. Now how does doubt in faith work in the Bible? Philip Yancey, a graduate of Wheaton College Graduate School and writer for Campus Life and Christianity Today, wrote this. One bold message in the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God, wrestling and struggling with God. The Bible is actually full of stories of doubting people. Oftentimes, the heroes of the Bible didn't earn their title because they believed without doubt. Rather, they earned their title because they had faith built upon their doubt. At the same time, there are also plenty of stories where doubt led to trouble or difficulty or consequences. The book of James points towards doubt-filled prayers not being answered. Jesus told his followers, pray with confidence. King David was told to trust God in battle. You remember the story? And because he doubted, he went and he counted all the soldiers and all the chariots and, and all the horses. And Scripture tells us in 2 Samuel 24, despite David repenting before God, which he did, there was still a huge price to pay, a huge price. The consequence of his doubt and disobedience. So we can't ignore all the stories where God's people doubted. Abraham and Sarah, Job, Moses, Gideon, Thomas, Jesus' own disciple. I could go on, but the point of the Bible is the Bible is full of people that doubted. They're not just people. They're the main characters in Scripture. 
The real issue isn't doubting God, rather it's what we do with that doubt. Doubt can keep us from following God and actually rebel against Him and disobey Him. And that's the insidiousness of doubt. That's the sin if we allow doubt to take us there. But on the flip side, it can actually increase our faith. Think about Peter. Good old Peter, we always come back to him, don't we, as, uh, using him as an example. His first encounter with Jesus started with doubt. He was a fisherman. They were out fishing. They were fishing all night long, and, and they, they come back in in the morning, and Jesus is standing there and says, hey, guys, go out and throw your nets out in the water again. He says, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. And he paused and said, but because you say so, I will. Now, that's a proper response to doubt. But then he doubted again when Jesus told, told them that he was going to be crucified. And Peter said, never, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. What was Jesus' sharp rebuke? Get behind me, Satan. The same Satan from Genesis 3, did God really say, was doing it again? Satan was tempting Jesus as well with that same thing. Did God really say that you're going to, be, you're going to uh, die? Nah, I don't believe that. Again, Jesus' response was the right one. Get behind me. In the storm on the sea, Jesus came walking to the disciples on the water. We talked about that as we went through Matthew. Peter actually got out of the boat and started walking to Jesus on the water in faith. And then he gets his eye off of Jesus, off of the truth, and doubt and fear settled in, and he started to sink. But then his response was the right one when he cried out, Jesus, save me. Jesus said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And in each step, Peter grew in his faith until he became one of the strongest preachers of the truth. You see, God isn't scared away by our doubt, but he does warn us about doubt because he knows where it can lead. Doubt and disbelief are two separate issues. Satan wants our doubt to lead to disbelief. But God doesn't condemn us for asking questions. He doesn't condemn us for asking questions. Jesus didn't condemn Thomas for wanting to, to see the holes in his hands or in his side. And Abraham and Sarah still receives God's promise despite laughing in doubt about having a child of their old age. See, God is interested in our hearts not some phony relationship pretending that we're super faith Christians. We shouldn't be afraid to bring our doubts to God. He doesn't want to condemn us for our lack of faith. He wants to restore us and he wants to redeem us if we allow him to. But that can only happen when we open our hearts to him, if we go to him with our doubts. How do we do that? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says this. Do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because our own understanding is flawed, it's weak, it's finite, it's emotional, and it's often based on a lack of information. Or it's based on the world's knowledge and understanding and not on God's Word. Our own understanding is often based on a secular, atheistic worldview. Everything that is being taught in our schools for decades now has been taught from the viewpoint that there is no God. 
The religion of atheism is being taught in our schools, and we've allowed it. But it says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, my estimation, the word acknowledge is kind of a weak translation. Yeah, okay, I heard it. That's the concept I, I get from that word. But the Hebrew word for acknowledge is actually yada. The primary meaning of yada is to know, to learn to know. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, get to know him. Get to know him. Get to know God. Because he is the creator. Get to know your creator. Yeah, but I don't know if he's really the creator. Stick around. We'll be talking about that as well in the weeks to come. And if we do that, if we get to know him, it says he will make your paths straight. If we get to know God and his word, he'll straighten us out in our thinking and our understanding. This past week we looked at Proverbs chapter 2 in our weekly Bible study and prayer time, Sunday evening and again on Tuesday evening. We found a conditional statement, conditional if-then kind of statement. Actually, there are six ifs in the first four verses. Three of them are implied, but listen. My son... If you accept my words, and if you, and I added that, store up my commands within you, if you turn your ear to wisdom, and if if you apply your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then... We're going to come to that word in just a moment, then... If you accept my words, that's the very first condition. That's what Satan's been fighting against for 6,000 years. Did God really say, don't accept his words? Trust me, the embodiment of evil and the embodiment of deceit. God says, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, there's an effort that is required on our part. First, we need to accept his words. Accept them as what? As truth. Secondly, we need to store up his commands within us. Reading through the Bible in a year is, is a good thing to do. You know, get, get, get through your th- three or four chapters a day. There's benefit to that. Kind of gives you a good overview of, of Scripture. But if we're going to store up his commands within us, we need to stop. We need to think. We need to pray. We need to ponder over his word so that it becomes a part of who we are. Thirdly, we need to turn our ear to wisdom. Whose wisdom? God's wisdom. Turning our ear, kashav is the Hebrew word, to hear, to be attentive to, to pay attention to. We need to stop paying attention to worldly, godless wisdom and turn our attention to and and pay attention to God's Word. And then fourthly, we need to apply our heart to understanding. What is God's Word saying to me personally right now? And because of what, I, what I've just read in my devotional time, how do I need to change my life? That's all just in the first two, two verses there in Proverbs 2. The fifth if is in verse 3. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask Markham, 
Somebody got that. We should ask God. We should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will what? It'll be given to you. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He wants us to ask. And the sixth if is found in verse 4. And if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure. You know, I don't know if you've ever found some silver laying along a pathway just as you've been walking along. I never have. There's work and effort needed to find it and to dig it out. It's so much easier to listen to my friends. It's so much easier to listen to YouTube and get my theology from YouTube. God says, my word is truth and you need to dig. We've been digging for the past three and a half years into Matthew and we've discovered some amazing things. And if we do that, here's the promise, then then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the, God, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. That's an amazing promise. But it's a promise that Satan doesn't want us to take a hold of. It's a great old hymn that says, Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. And the second verse says, Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living Word of God I shall prevail. How? Standing on the promises of God. Jesus in his prayer in John 17, speaking to his father, said, Your word is truth. Do we believe Jesus? When we look at the Bible, we see truth. The Bible doesn't just contain truth. It is the truth. Every word in the truth, in every part of the Bible. The psalmist says in Psalm 12, verse 6, The works of the Lord are flawless like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Folks, how we respond to God's written word and the word made flesh, talking about Jesus Christ himself, has an eternal impact on us. Since God's word is truth, rejecting the Bible, rejecting Jesus is rejecting God himself. And that's exactly what Satan wanted when he asked the question, Did God really say? Did God really say? Believing, loving, studying, and obeying God's words, the key to salvation, the key to understanding God, the key to living life abundantly. No matter what we face in this world, we are held up and strengthened by the truth prayed over us by Jesus in John chapter 7 when he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them pure. Make them righteous by your truth. But in order for us to believe in God's word, we need to know that it is true and it is reliable. Can we trust it? I mean, Hasn't science already disproved the Bible? 
you know, it was written so long ago, my goodness, there are so many changes, so many translations. How can we even trust it? Come back next week. We're going to start looking at that from a biblical perspective as well as from a worldly and a scientific, astrological, medicinal, (laughs) mathematical perspective. Is God's truth reliable? Did God really say? Is the Bible reliable? Can we really trust it? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, this morning, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to understanding what your Holy Spirit has to say to us. And Father, if there are areas that we doubt, you're not angry at us. But I pray that you'd help us come to you and say, God, I I, I don't get this. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm understanding. It seems that this is the way it happened, but your, your word says differently, and I, 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 don't, I don't get it. And Father, we know that as we come to you asking these questions, as we delve deeply into your word, the answers are there. The understanding is there. You have promised that, that, us that understanding. So I pray that what perhaps we have learned whether it's from school, whether it's from news, whether it's from books, whatever, I pray that as we look at your word and compare that we would see where the truth lays. And Father, we pray that your truth would change our lives, transform us in the way we look at your word as the way we uh, receive the living word, Jesus Christ himself. So, Father, do, do that new work. Transform, begin the transformation process in our minds and in our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.